and welcome to another episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. We're a podcast for cool people who love libraries where we talk about what we've been reading, what we've been watching, and what we've been loving. I'm your host, Kayla, and the branch librarian at the Oak Lawn Branch Library, and my pronouns are she, her. My name is Elise. I'm the Youth Services Librarian at William Hall Library, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Dave. I'm the Coordinator of Adult Services at the Central Library, and my pronouns are he, him. Thank you both for joining me again, both returning guests on the show. And Dave gets to be on mic after a long time off of mic, so I'm sure he's very excited about that. I have so many opinions. (laughs) So a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about Will Eisner Week, which is the first week in March. And this episode will come out during that week. So if you're listening, it's already Will Eisner Week because it's the future. And... Uh, a little bit about him and why that week is important. But before we jump into that, uh, let's start off as we always do with what have you been reading? So I have been reading some quite heavy things and some quite light things. So um, the Read Across Rhode Island book for this year is Stamp. I believe, Taylor, you already had an entire program about this. Yes. Um, So I'm going to be leading a book club discussion about it um, at the William Hall branch. And I thought, because Stamped is a young adult version of Stamped from the Beginning by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, that I should read Stamped from the Beginning in order to round out the discussion. Stamped from the Beginning is a 500-page intellectual history of racist thought in Europe and North America. It's a little heavy, so I decided to kind of break up my reading of Stamped from the Beginning. It's excellent and very readable for quite a long intellectual history, I will say, but it's a lot. So I decided to break it up by reading um, Alex Osmond's Heartstopper, which is a graphic novel about two young men who go to school, I think in England, and they become very close friends and maybe something more. I just finished volume one, which ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. So that's what I've been reading. Two two contrasts, um, but both really good. The yin and the yang to keep yourself balanced. Yeah. Um, so I, I've got a couple like long reading projects going on. One is to read every book in uh, Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. And because there are 40 some of those, I'm trying to parcel it out. So I'm, you know, otherwise I'd just read nothing but that for two years straight. So this year I started out with Guards Guards. And that is the first of the Nightwatch series starring um, Captain Vimes. And I've read that whole series backwards, which was a really fun way to kind of get to know the characters. I am always struck when I read a Pratchett book by how relevant they still are. So like that one was all about how much faith we put in our leaders and how a different leader doesn't necessarily mean things are going to get better. It just means they're a different kind of bad sometimes. And so it felt it always feels very, very relevant when I read one of those. And then... um, thinking about epic fantasy, but not from a satirical standpoint, but from a um, centering First Nations standpoint, I read Black Sun by Rebecca Rowanhorse recently, and that was incredible. And uh, she really went at that thinking there are epic fantasies and they're always based in like Arthurian England or that kind of like that is thought of as the air quotes platonic ideal of, you know, what an epic fantasy is. She made an epic fantasy for Americas. And so there's, you know, the country is called the Meridian. There's all this interesting magic and fantasy stuff going on that is just really engaging and very completely original and drawing from yeah, the, the cultures that were already here. So I was really enjoyed that. I can't wait for book two and book three because that's a new fantasy trilogy. But that was a very good book. 
I'll have to add that and look out for the sequels. I'm always interested in the idea of like decentering whiteness in fantasy, because when you are in that kind of like European medieval setting, it's like there's only so many ideas we can do with that. So besides it being great diversity and representation out there, it also just like gives us more interesting fantasy settings from things that we haven't seen before. Yeah, and that's definitely why I picked it up. Like, yes to the diversity and to the representation and all the things, but also uh, Rebecca Roanhorse is a fantastic writer and it sounded really good and it was really good. So like primarily I wanted to read a good book, but also I think getting that idea of what is default out of my head personally, and I think all of our heads, we could all use a little bit of that. And again, it was just the magic I, I love it when someone can write magic that is just big and scary. And there is that primal level of that where there's things that happen that you're just like, whoa, you know, this is so big and almost too much for the page, which is really cool. And she hits that really well. It's also great when you have like an own voices writer writing fantasy mm -hmm. where I think a lot of time when reading, especially fantasy books that date from earlier in the 20th century, the sense of danger tends to come from othering and usually the othering is done yeah. to minority groups or even if it's a fantasy species, it's meant to symbolize some group or another. So when you have and scary, but without that aspect to yeah. it, that's it. it you know, obviously it feels better to read about. Um, it's less cringe. Uh, but also, I think, you know, when you're getting at scary that doesn't come from othering, like that's a whole new realm of scary. It's actually scary. It's not right. like straw man argument scary. Yeah, and I do, like, I, I love Lord of the Rings. I've read Lord of the Rings at least a dozen times through. And there is definitely ways to look at it and say, like, oh, well, you know, Sam's noticing this person talking about the people from, you know, the far-off Blacklands or whatever, right? And, yeah, but also it's not great. You know, so there's charitable ways to look at it and be like, he knew what he was kind of playing into, and he's trying to shoot it down a little bit with these little small moments with the hobbits. Um, but also he created the entire you know, what I just called the platonic ideal of fantasy. The complicated, interesting thing I think about like interpreting Tolkien is that he himself said that he hated allegory yeah. and that his books were, unlike his buddy C.S. Lewis, none of his books were, from his perspective, intended to be allegorical. And so when people were saying, oh yeah, this obviously like is part, like it represents your experiences in World War One, and the hobbits are this nation and the elves are this nation, he's like, no. No, they're yeah. hobbits and they are from Hobbiton and they yes. are elves and they are from Rivendell and it, it, Rivendell is not France. Does you, so you mentioned C.S. Lewis and uh, allegory. Did you ever see the Kate Beaton comic that's like J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis where somebody's like, is this allegory? And he says exactly what you said, at least. So like, no, no, not at all. And then the other one is um, C.S. Lewis writing. And it's like, if one person doesn't know that this lion is Jesus, I will kill myself. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I've seen that comment. It's just like, it's so perfect. Also, I, I think it was a post going around on Tumblr where it was maybe an apocryphal story about how Tolkien and C.S. Lewis are like walking along. And he's like, can I tell you about my new character I have created for my fantasy world, C.S.? And he's like, is it a talking tree and he was like no and then he said fine tell me about it it was a talking tree yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i've seen that post i haven't seen the comic but i've yeah. definitely seen that um but it's like interesting how you can almost incidentally create allegories 
like just we're so used to speaking in like, you know, idioms and metaphors and so used to stories being constructed in that way that even when you're like, nope, I just want to write a story about habits and elves and dwarves, uh, everyone could be like, but clearly it's an allegory for this, that or the other thing. It's so interesting to me and uh, and also kind of shows how the reader is half the story. Yes which is what I found so interesting about being like an English major is just like how much we as the reader bring to things that we read. I think once you get to college level of interpreting, it's away from the the high school teacher narrative of like, what did the author intend? Especially like as an English major, you start to get into theory stuff and your professors are like, what the author intended? Like, doesn't really matter that much as long as you have like a good argument that's based in whatever theory and you convey it in a certain way that like you as the the reader and the interpreter of that text is all that's needed for that interpretation to be a part of the the grander discussion on that text well and that's the universality of um, art where really good art you can read it however you want and it will speak to whatever you're thinking there's those certain books that you read and it's like this was the perfect book for me to read right now because it spoke to this thing that's on my mind you know and again getting back to Pratchett like they always feel relevant because he's sort of you can just read it that way you can layer all that stuff on top with his uh, fantasy satire that um you know just always seems to work and it's amazing that he wrote those books like 30 years ago and I think that that's there's another like point within like getting going too far with literary criticism and one kind of criticism yep. where if you entrench something too deeply in allegory, especially allegory and like real life events, then things can stop feeling relevant. And when they are, I mean, if if every high school teacher tells every high school class the witchcraft is communism in the crucible, then they're going to stop thinking about it as a play with relevance for 2021 and beyond and just think about it as a play that was written in response to this thing that happened back in the 50s and that we don't need to worry about anymore. No, that's definitely true. Because I feel like, yeah, at the time, the the witchcraft probably was communism, but also taking it. Yes, Yes, and taking it into the 21st century, the witchcraft can be whatever other, I hate to you, whatever other metaphorical witch hunt is going on at that Mm. time. But now that we got in the weeds about literary criticism, (laughs) (laughs) let's move on to what you guys have been watching. So um, it's late February in Rhode Island. Of course, by the time you listen to this, it will be early March, but uh, time is a flat circle, which means for me and my family, we're always doing the Providence Children's Film Festival, which we missed out on last year, but this year they've done online. So we just finished watching a bunch of um, virtual film festival uh, from the comfort of our couches, which has been a lot of fun. So that's pretty much everything we watched this past week. Um, Shorts for children, shorts made by um, you makers which is great and then um there was a really great documentary uh, titled first we eat which was a documentary of a family in the yukon they live in a place where there's one road to get into town and one year there was an avalanche that took out the road and so the supermarkets went bare and the mother of this family said i need to be able to feed my family if this ever happens again so she embarked on a one-year project to locally like within a radius of her home and made all of these relationships with farmers. Her husband and oldest kid went out hunting. Um, and it was a really fascinating look at how hard it is to just, you know, like 
eat like locally, they were doing so much work collecting and storing and, and also how important it is to have those sources of food, this thing that we all need um, and have a relationship with it. So it really made me think about um, having kid um, conversations with my kids about, you know, what does it mean to eat locally? And our middle child was just like, well, the grocery store is not that far away. It's like, yeah, but you know, think about all the food in the grocery store. Like look at this banana from Honduras or whatever, you know, what does it mean to actually eat closer to home and how hard is that? And so a lot of really good conversations with them and a really, really interesting film where at the end of the year, the entire family, except for the mom said that they weren't going to keep doing it anymore. <laughs> Their youngest kid was the best character in the, in the thing. And she was like, I like sugar and I like salt. And it's just, <laughs> Just adorable. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it was really, really cool. And um, I always love, you know, the things that the Chains Film Festival puts on. It's great every year. But yeah, I think that is really telling about like how, how hard it is. Because it's something that I've definitely thought about. And I've, I've read stuff about how eating a regular like omnivore diet that's sourced locally is the way to have the lowest impact on the environment so yeah so it's something that i've definitely thought a lot about but like we as a culture are set up for failure like your your middle child saying about well the grocery store isn't that far away like she can't even conceive of a way that's not the grocery store to get food and i don't think a lot of people could start to do that like you said this place is someplace so there is probably farmland nearby or and even if they wanted to grow it something they probably have like land to do that but if you think of people like in urban areas it's like their journey to eat locally even begin because right. sometimes they don't even have a grocery store in their neighborhood definitely yeah. shout out to farm fresh rhode island and uh, they just opened their new location in like downtown providence and they're fantastic and um definitely a good local resource if you want to at least start thinking about food local from home um but they just i mean it's just so much work and watching this movie like they harvested sh sugar beets into like powdered sugar to put in things and it was like you gotta blend it up and then you've gotta put it in a pan and then you've gotta cook it and then you've gotta wait for it to dry and like there was a sign that put on top of it that said like please do not eat this it is a lot of work that went into this like you know, because then she's going to take it and run it through another food processor to make it into powder. And it's like, now I have sugar. And it was just this long multi-step process. And it really makes you think about, for me, I just go home and be like, oh, sugar, like here, I, I have it. Um, so definitely something worth considering. It's like, you know, thinking about where our food comes from. It's supposed to be a lighter conversation. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've been watching something quite light indeed. Um, yes. So... You've all heard of the Great British Bake Off. You've all heard of a lovely show where competitors really are students on a journey together and they support one another and they make pastries. This show is that, but with ceramics. So I've been making my way through all of the seasons on HBO Max of the Great Pottery Throwdown, which is, you might know, is very similar to the Great British Bake Off because it's produced by the same company. It's also made by Love Productions. Um, but it's great. You have all of these potters who come together and they create all kinds of things. They make vases and they've made like fireplace surrounds and they've made toilets that they hand cast from clay. And then wonderful Rich, the guy who works at the kiln, fires it up and is just like, good luck. And something that is similar to baking, which I'm more familiar with than pottery, is once it goes in the oven, once it goes in the kiln, 
it's all up to science. There's nothing you can do. And there are so many things that could go wrong. If you didn't work the clay enough, if it's too dry, if it's too wet, it could just explode. There was one episode where everyone put their beautiful like pieces that they'd worked so hard on in the kiln, but because the show takes place in the UK, it was quite windy and rainy. And so there was like a backdraft that got in the chimney and everything just broke. Oh. And they were, they were just like, well, that's okay. There wasn't really anything we could do about it. Just gonna, just gonna glue it, just gonna fix it. And it's just, it's, it's so soothing. Um, and off of that on Acorn TV, I also watched the Victorian House of Arts and Crafts. A lot of English stuff, but different people, crafts people, <laughs> potters, sewers, smiths come together to decorate a house in the English arts and crafts style, which was not only an art style in the 19th century, it was also a political movement um, where in the 1860s, 1870s, as a reaction against industrialization, crafters came together um, to put handwork back into arts and crafts, like wallpaper making and making bowls and cups and things like that with the idea that objects should not only be functional, they should be beautiful and they should be for everyone. They shouldn't be, they shouldn't be luxury goods. Everyone should be able to partake in functionality and beauty. It's all very bread and roses. So I really enjoyed the educational aspect of that, but also watching people make things. Those sound really cool. I'm still on, we're, we're almost done with Star Wars Rebels. We have like a little bit more than a, se a season and a little bit more left. So we're still on that. But sometimes when, you know, to just fill time in between things or when, you know, we, we don't want to do something together, I will watch YouTube a lot. And this is, I'm thinking of this because of kind of what Elise was talking about. And I know that this will be super up Elise's alley. But I watched like a 30 minute video of this woman, Abby Cox. I don't know if you already. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I figured. adore Abby Cox. <laughs> so I know you have, I think on the show, talked about Cause 2 before, but I watched a video where she basically went through from like the 15th century to not really the present. Because once you get to a certain point, it kind of just became more of the same but like corsetry and stays and stuff and the history of like the clothing women used to you know to dress themselves and and to have supportive garments for themselves i i threaded the needle and avoided saying certain words um I can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> now, I love that video. And I, I liked the reason why she created the video was because um, she had been speaking to the camera in such a way. This probably make it into the recording, but that um, she had leaned over and got demonetized her, her YouTube video where she'd been making a, I think, 13th century kirtle. And she just kind of leaned forward to kind of like talk into the camera. And because of the cut of the gown she was wearing, YouTube flagged it as inappropriate and demonetized it. And so she decided that she would do a video about garments that were worn on the torso um, by when through the centuries. And also, I think um, it's becoming more and more popular to debunk myths about corsetry as torture devices and symbols of patriarchal oppression when actually we don't need symbols of patriarchal oppression. We just need to know about like women's property rights um, to really get a sense of that. But yeah, no, it's such a good video. 
But yeah, because I've worn some corset treat for cosplay before, and my boyfriend's been like, isn't that super uncomfortable to wear? And I'm like, I'm just lacing so that it fits me. I'm not lacing down to get this like extreme waistline or any type of like extreme silhouette. So it's like, no, it's not that uncomfortable. And actually, I sit up straighter than I do the rest of my whole life. Yeah, it, people will wear back braces and supportive garments to improve posture now, which are actually less comfortable than corsets would have been in the 19th century because something made out of plastic and nylon and elastic, it might provide support, but it's not providing comfort. Whereas corsets, because they were made out of natural materials, including the boning, which people are like, steel boning. Most corsets were boned with baleen, which is an organic material from baleen whales. And it would, over time and with heat and pressure, conform to the shape of the body. So it would be quite a comfortable garment. And most people were not lacing down. Just like you said, Taylor, it's believed that most women, even in the 1860s, which was the time when the silhouette emphasized the smallness of the waist, if one was lacing down, one was lacing down maybe one to two inches, which is about the same amount of reduction you can get with quite a tight pair of Spanx but more comfortable than a pair of Spanx because Spanx are just a nylon tube. <laughs> and Davis now learned more about corsetry than he ever okay. wanted, though. It's always nice to know things. Because she just did 18th century potentially sunscreen. Wow. That was this week's video. But yeah, most people think about 18th century court wear, that pasty white face with the rouge. And she said possibly what the interpretation was is that some... 18th century cold creams or like recipes for facial moisturizers included zinc oxide, which is also available in mineral sunscreens. Mm. And what people complain about with mineral sunscreens is you get that white cast to your face from the zinc. But she's going to do an experiment where she makes her little 18th century zinc oxide facial moisturizer thing and go, and she lives in Nevada. So she's going to like go out into the sun when there is sun and see if it provides any sun protection. So, you know, huh. at home archaeology. Fascinating. Science. And we'll return to the show after a quick break. Get ready to dance. Miss Martha invites families to join her on Zoom for a music and movement storytime dance party. This interactive program will include children's music, singing songs, and dancing, of course. The parties will be Saturdays at 2.30 p.m. on March 20th please register to receive the Zoom link for this program. The link to register can be found on our event calendar at cranstonlibrary.org. Why not pick up a good book and join the discussion? Catch up with virtual book group meetings of the Graphic Novel Book Group, Cookbook Club, the all-new nonfiction book group, Hidden in the Stacks, and YA for Adults Book Group. For more information and to register, visit cranstonlibrary.org slash book dash groups or contact the Central Library Reference Desk at central at cranstonlibrary.org. Stay safe and happy reading. Without further ado, let's talk about what I brought you both on to talk about, which is uh, that the library is going to celebrate Will Eisner Week, which is March 1st through the 7th, um, which is a week where libraries, along with other comic and book-related people, celebrate the legacy of Will Eisner and graphic novels and comics. 
so Dave, do you want to tell us a little bit about Will Eisner, who he was, and why he's important to comics and graphic novels? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Um, so yeah, um, Will Eisner was born on March 6th, 1917. So that's why Will Eisner Week is the first week of March to kind of coincide with his birthday every year. Um, he was um, there at the dawn of comics as a very serious medium. I mean, you think about the creation of characters like Batman, of um, Captain America, and he was right there at the the dawn of the era, the golden age of comics. Um, created his most famous uh, character at that time was called The Spirit, which was a crime fighting comic that was in newspapers, but it wasn't a comic strip like we think of comic strips in newspapers. It was its own six to seven page section at the back of uh, newspapers and was syndicated. Um, yeah, this was just before World War II, basically. And then World War II, he was drafted into the army and um, worked in the publication division, making war posters and things like that. And then, you know, continue to just really influence a lot of people in that early era of comic books. Um, and then getting into the 70s and his later work, uh, he actually invented the term graphic novel. Um, he was writing stories that were using what he called sequential art. So art and words together telling a story. And they were not comic books with like, you know, superheroes and fighting and all of that. Like what was thought of as comic books. He felt like he needed a new word for his book, A Contract with God, which was the first one. Um, and he called that a graphic novel to denote it being different than the comic books of the day and to get it some some respect as as it was coming out and not just be, um, you know, a bunch of whiz-bang shoot-em-ups. So he really birthed that entire art form of, you know, different ways to tell stories uh, with his graphic novels and then worked in that uh, right up until, pretty much until his death in the early 2000s. So um, in celebration of this week, we at the Cranston Public Library have decided to do a couple things. So we did a series of video book talks about different graphic novels with the focus on immigrant stories. And then you can pick up some kits. Emily, our um, youth services coordinator, is working on some take-home kits that'll help Patrons make their own uh, graphic story uh, using some dice. So they'll roll some dice and kind of roll a story like that. It should be a lot of fun. And it is kind of like targeted towards families, but any, anyone can get to the library and request one of those kits if they're still available and um, try making your own comic, uh, which is really just telling a story with words and pictures. Yeah, hopefully we won't yeah. have gotten rid of all the kits by the time <laughs> this episode comes out. I didn't think of that. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> So we each, everyone here uh, on this episode today, read a book to do a book talk about. So I thought that you guys could talk a little bit about what book you read and your kind of like initial thoughts and feelings about it. And then we will in the show notes direct people to the videos. Yep. You want to go first, Elise? Sure. So the book that I chose to read was I Was Their American Dream by Malika Garib. And the reason why I picked it was because it said in the description that her mother is Filipino and her father is Egyptian. And I thought that's a really interesting family background. Those are two parts of the world that I don't think of as coming together. But of course they did because both of her parents emigrated to the U.S. and this was where they met and her parents didn't stay together, I guess, spoiler alert, but they get divorced fairly early in the comic. Um, and her father moved back to Egypt, remarried. Um, and so Malika would go to Egypt to spend the summer with him. And she would, the rest of the time she was in California being raised by her mother and her extended family um, because 
Her dad was the only member of his family who came over from Egypt, whereas her mom and a lot of family members wound up coming over from the Philippines. And so she had this like huge Filipino network. Um, And so the story is really about her kind of figuring out where she fit in with both halves of her identity, but also having been born and raised in America. She winds up going to college in upstate New York, which just ethnically is a very different kind of place. Uh, And I like the way that she did the art for the comic. It's a, it's, it's very, I don't want to say cartoony, but it's very simple lines um, with a lot of panels per page. And she also included like quizzes and things, which I loved. It reminded me a little bit of reading like Marissa Moss, um, Amelia's notebook um, stories in the nineties. Cause that was super popular, but I just kind of liked how busy all of the pages were, how much information she put in the humor. And I thought it was a really wonderful read. I was going to say quizzes with inside inside of books is a very 90s thing, like 90s early aughts to do. So, Dave, what about what book did you pick? Yeah. So um, because I'm a glutton for punishment, I'm actually going to do two books. Um, I really need to record those. That's just an aside. So uh, so the first one I'm doing is um, it's Dropsy Avenue. That is a, a book by Will Eisner. Dropsy Avenue is this street in the South Bronx. It's a mythical street, he calls it, so it's made up. But um, it basically is supposed to stand in for the place where he grew up. And the story of Dropsy Avenue takes place over 400 years. And um, it tells the story of this place through the people who lived there. And one of the themes throughout the book is that the people who live there always look down on the people who are moving there even though they themselves were the people that moved there that other people were looking down on. And um, so he's, he starts with the Dutch, Dutch people who lived there looking down on the English as they move in, and then the English are looking down on the Irish, and then the Irish is looking down on the lower-class Irish that moves in there, and, and so on and so forth down the line. And it's a really fascinating way to look at the history. He gets into the Depression, he gets into um, Prohibition, the World Wars, the 1980s and Bronx bombings that were going on, like all of that history. um, But it's told from a very, very narrow lens of the people who live there. Um, And it's, it's a really interesting way to look at the history and to think about like it's all happened before. I think, I think that the fact that everything's changing and the way everyone reacts to it is just, it's very constant, which is fascinating. I, I mean, I think I would, the one reservation I would have for suggesting the book is it does traffic a little bit in stereotype just to give you like a sense of this is who this person is in one panel. Like, look, this is an Irish guy. Um, I will also say that the more sympathetic characters are the characters of color. Uh, there's a little girl named Ruby that is uh, a black citizen of Dropsy Avenue towards the end of the book. And she's a very like a very sympathetic character, a very well-drawn character. So it, I think toes the line with stereotype without getting into like too racist of a look which i think was well done as far as a later work that was able to do this but in an artistic way and not just you know make everybody a stereotype um with the well done but i very much liked that book and that's what gave us our whole theme for um the rest of the eisner week programming is just thinking about the stories of people who have come places from other places um the second one that i'm going to do it's laguardia and that's by uh nedi okorafor and it is a futuristic tale of a woman who moves to New York from Africa, and she s- sneaks into the country with a sentient plant 
And so in this future, there are um, beings that have come from all over the, the cosmos to um, the planet we live on, Earth. That's it. <laughs> that <laughs> that have come, come, Yeah, you know, the one, just the one. <laughs> and it really it was written shortly after the Muslim ban and the events from 2017. And so it, it really has a lot of the echoes of how people were being treated when they're coming from other countries and then how we could probably do better. Um, so it's a very hopeful tale that at the end, you know, she's also pregnant when she moves. And so she's just dealing with that and dealing with taking care of this uh, sentient plant person. Um, and it, it just is a really nice story of, you know, again, thinking about the people and not just these kind of vague groups of people, but like the individual people and having some compassion for them. So that's a really good book. I'm looking forward to reading it again so that I can make a book talk. <laughs> And so for my book talk, uh, and I mentioned it briefly on another episode, but for my book talk, I read Superman Smashes the Clan, which I yes. I wanted to, yes, everyone's feelings about that, including mine are the same. Everyone's reaction is like, the book is so good and it's, and it's worth it because it is. Yeah. Um, so I had picked that one because I had finished reading Dragon Hoop somewhat recently and enjoyed that immensely. And I was like, I'm going to read more stuff that Jean Lu and Yang has written because... Yeah. Let, you know, see what that's like. And yeah, Superman Smashes the Clan did not disappoint. The concept of the comic is it's set late 40s, post-World War II, but just immediately so. Um, and it centers around this Chinese-American family and their experience facing harassment from what is a standard for the Ku Klux Klan, which comes from when it was originally appeared in Superman, called them the Clan of the Fiery Cross. And I think that was to avoid uh, any type of libel slander um, if they used the, the Ku Klux Klan's real name. But so that happens to this family when they first move into this like suburban majority white neighborhood. And then you know, Superman gets involved and things progress from there. Um, but I enjoyed it immensely. And the, the like back matter, the author's note and a lot of the additional stuff, I think was like the cherry on top that it was so well done. It like covered all the context that you needed to know to fully appreciate the story while also including a little bit about, uh, Jean Lu and Yang's personal mm -hmm. life. Um, but yeah, so I like learned a lot that I didn't know about discrimination against Chinese Americans, against Japanese Americans, starting pre-World War II and then through it and after it. But in the author's note, he says about how the original concept of this story of Superman and the Clan of the Fiery Cross was a radio play done yep. when radio plays were a big deal. And in that original story, it, I think it still was like a Chinese-American family, but it was like the son and the parents and then like unnamed sister. Well, I'd like to imagine that Jean Lu and Yang was like, you know what, unnamed sister, you're going to be star of this show now. Yes. Your name's Roberta and we're going to focus on you and you're going to be just a likable and lovely character. Yeah. Uh, so I really appreciated that this young woman was the one who got to kind of like have the interactions with Superman and, and be kind of like a really active agent in in the story. Yeah, I listened to a little bit of that um, that radio play. It's on YouTube. You could just go, you know, search for it. It is there. Um, it's really interesting. 
Um, Roberta Lee from Superman Smashes the Clan is one of my favorite characters that I read in books last year, like hands down. She's just got so much strength and um, it's just so fun. And I think it was really great how much she helped Superman, even as Superman was helping them. And, um, you know, I don't want to spoil anything, certainly if you haven't read it and want to pick it up. But um, I think it also did a really fascinating job of explaining the development of Superman. Um, and again, you know, going back to talking about Golden Age comics, like, you know, Superman was a very different character when he started and, you know, started by um, immigrants, uh, Jewish American immigrants. And so that speaks a lot to that experience from its very inception. And I didn't even touch on Will Eisner, you know, also um, had that same Jewish American experience that comes out in his work. And so that idea of being someone who othered is kind of baked right into comic books, even when you're talking about the smash them up superhero comics, um, you know, and so it was, it was really fascinating kind of putting together this group of books to, to program together. It was a lot of fun working with y'all on that. Yeah, I know. I enjoyed doing yeah. it because I got to read a really <laughs> awesome book that I've been meaning to read like since it came out. Um, and also Roberta's character design is super cute on like a super, on a, like a, Allo end of it is just like I don't want to spoil, but yeah, I was gonna say at one point this happens, and then she has this cute jacket. She has a cute jacket. Watch out for the jacket. cute jacket. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it's cool centering immigrant narratives during Eisner Week because you're totally right that especially a lot of superheroes that we think of as being sort of like the OG superheroes. Some developed directly as a response to World War II when their very first actions were to take on the Nazis. And I think it's a level of political engagement that somehow doesn't seem political in a way that I don't think you have superheroes now. They might be taking on metaphors for, Mm. getting back into metaphor and allegory again, they might be taking on (laughs) metaphors for certain groups or certain ideologies, but it's very unlikely that you're going to see a superhero engaging in fisticuffs with an actual world leader nowadays in a way that they, they very much were visually represented going after specific individuals in the 30s and 40s, yeah. Mm-hmm. Even if they had to call some of these groups the Clan of the Fiery Cross to avoid libel suits. But yeah, right. you're right. I, I can't think of any superheroes right now that are punching Hitler squarely in the face. Well, uh, and it's, you know, the, the people saying, you know, why does this have to be so political, you know, is just such a such a common complaint that you hear lobbed at things. And I think it's always been political. And, you know, it's only political in that it's dealing with people and it's the real stories of real people you know again getting back also to like really good art like really good art is going to do that it's going to tell a human story and it's going to tell that story so well from their point of view that it makes you really think about it and if you feel like that's too political um i feel like some introspection could be used in that case yeah i think that you know superman himself was an immigrant who was sent by his parents to kansas for a better life which he found yeah. And that's and that's not an accident. That story is you know, not an accident at all. Another book recommendation, if anyone hasn't read The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon, it's a fictionalized story of two Jewish immigrants who meet and then start writing comic books. And um, it mirrors Will Eisner's own life story so well, um, but is a fictional account. That's a really, really cool book that can just kind of also give you that sense from what that story was like for these creators 
making, you know, stuff that everybody thought was for kids, but I think they were always doing more. Yeah, definitely. So we wrap up the show with a segment I call The Last Chapter, where we discuss a bookish or library-related question. So of my list of questions, this one is, I think, one of those ones that's really like, wow, it's really a thinker, but I I have faith, so I feel good that you guys are equipped to handle this. Um, But is if you could change one thing about mainstream literature, what would you change? And some examples are like more diversity, better writing, better plot. And if you want to focus on graphic novels, you can or just talk broadly about literature. That's fine. I guess. If I could get rid of one concept um, from reading and I think enjoying things in general, it would be the concept of guilty pleasure. Um, You know, I I really feel like you're going to read what speaks to you. You're going to read what you enjoy. You're going to watch what you enjoy. And um, no one should make you feel guilty for enjoying the things you like. I know some some reading is work. Some reading is, um, you know, going to challenge our kind of our intellect more than others. I'm thinking about Stamp from the Beginning specifically, which I also have not yet read, um, but would definitely love to. Um, that's, you know, that is a work to read, right? But you also, you got to just kind of enjoy yourself with, you know, the time you have left to read. So I would go with um, banning the guilty pleasure. Don't be guilty. Yeah, I would have to, because like when people ask that question, of like, what's your guilty pleasure? It's like, I don't know. I've stopped feeling bad for enjoying things. <laughs> So, which I think being part of like the nerd community is definitely like been good of that is like once you, once you fully adopt that, like you're into things that the mainstream culture doesn't think is cool, even though it's coming back around and now nerdy things are cool, but that's a whole different thing. Uh, But once you like embrace that, it's like, yeah, no, I just like, like what I like and it's whatever. I'm just having a good time here. It's really Mm -hmm. hard to answer the question of like, what's your guilty pleasure? I guess for me, this is more of like an industry thing but we've talked about on the show before Taylor how much I enjoy writing fan fiction and so there's just a lot of people putting out whatever they want and like there's no AU untried like everything just kind of like goes onto the internet and you can kind of pick and choose what you like best and I I wish that mainstream publishing was a little bit more like that in that it wasn't so hard for new writers to get exposure or break into the industry. If just publishing was easier, if just getting more books out there was easier. And I know I say this as a librarian and we're always saying, oh, I wish I had the money to buy this. But I also wish kind of the concept of like the bestseller was a little bit less important to people. So that way the doors could be thrown open for more works from more authors representing more people. So no one feels this tremendous pressure to get it right because they feel like they're the only voice speaking for their community. I feel like it is getting a little bit better, though. I feel a way way back. I felt like I watched some video that was like might have been a clip from an actual news show that was saying that Wattpad, which is a website that people frequently post their fan works and original works, it's supposed to be like kind of like a blogging platform for writing, that that company uses algorithms to analyze those people's writing. And then they like figure out if the things people posting there are like good enough to publish with that algorithm and people have gotten published through that. Which again, it's like, I don't think that's the best solution is like, let's have a computer figure out if your, your work is good based on other samples of good writing. Cause that, that will have its own biases. I don't know. We've talked about 50 shades of gray before, but like as much as I hate that for other reasons or 
have problems with it. Hate is a strong word. Have problems with it for other reasons. Uh, The idea that someone could write a Twilight fan fiction, change the names and get published is like kind of wild. But no, I mean, E.L. James also had connections in the publishing industry as well. Oh, I didn't know that. I think she's a producer for or was a producer in Britain. And so I, I think the narrative around Fifty Shades is like, oh, she stumbled across this thing called fan fiction and she just got really popular, but actually she had a leg up that most fan creators don't have. Not even necessarily fan works, just people who write their own original fiction and self-publish. Most just don't have the resources that Erica Mitchell had when she took um, Fifty Shades to publishing. Okay, that that adds a whole nother dimension because I really had bought into the uh, the thing of just like, she wrote Twilight fan fiction and she'd changed the names and sent it to a publisher. I've done so much research on <laughs> what happened here, not because I really love Erica Mitchell and think that what she did was so great because I also have a lot of problems with that whole situation. And, and it's it's hard because a lot of that early stuff, like her blog where she had the more um, R-rated chapters um, was taken down. And a lot of this has been kind of lost even to the Wayback Machine. But yeah, it's, it's a much more complicated situation than like People Magazine made it sound when they were talking about Fifty Shades when it first became like part of the um, cultural zeitgeist. Um, I'm trying to think about my answer to this. And the only thing <laughs> I keep coming back to is better covers. So there has been a lot of great covers. I'm not saying that all covers are bad, but the frequency that a good book gets a bad cover, and I don't know how to fix this. I don't know if they should do more focus groups, if they should get the author more involved, or just like, what would you like to be on here? Um, I don't know what the solution for better covers is. It's just, especially in YA, sometimes some things that are good get bad covers and then it's like this cover is supposed to be advertising for this book how are we supposed to be like convincing teens to read these books if the cover doesn't even seem appealing so that's the only thing i could think of better covers for good books so i think that's a wrap thank you both for joining me and thank you everyone for listening if you want to Tell us about something that you'd like to see on the show. You could email us at downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. And if you're feeling generous, go over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and drop us a rate and review. Helps people find the show. So thank you again for listening. And this has been another episode of Downtime. Downtime is a project of the Cranston Public Library and is produced by Zach Berger, Martha Boxenbaum, Robin Nizio, and me, Taylor Cardillo. Audio engineering by Dave Bartos. Our theme music is Day Trips by Ketza, and our ad music is Happy Ukulele by Scott Holmes. Links to the books and movies discussed can be found in the show notes. Remember to rate and review Downtime on Apple Podcasts, connect with CPL on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, send an email to downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. Join us next week for more Downtime. Oh God, did my internet just go out? Dave and Taylor, I don't know if you can hear me. I don't know if you can hear me or if you're reading. Okay, you can, great. (laughs)